Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Katherine Shen. As journalists, it's been challenging for us to watch what's happening to our fellow members of the press in Gaza. As of today, 83 journalist casualties have occurred in this region. That's according to the Committee to Protect Journalists. The blue press vest and helmet are heavy weights to carry for so many still trying to report what's happening while keeping themselves and their families safe. Plistea Alakad was more or less a normal 22-year-old when the war started. She has studied journalism in school, and after October 7th, she started reporting on what's happening around her in Gaza. She recently made a difficult decision to leave the region. This week, Where We Live spoke to her about her experience. So uh, before we get into everything, Plestia, and also your work as a journalist, could you just give us an update about how you're doing right now? That's a very good question that I don't think I have an answer to. Like, because it's a roller coaster of emotions, really. Like, a minute I think I'm okay, then the other minute I hear a certain news and uh, I realize that I'm not okay. Mm-hmm. I feel that the minute there's a, a truce or, like, a, a complete ceasefire and the bombing stops, then I'll be able to answer this question because until then I will start processing everything that's, mm-hmm. that happened. Because until now, like... How would you be any better when every day you wake up to a new massacre? Right. And I want to get into your experience of making that transition later on in the conversation. But I also want to start by asking to, you know, can you share with us what did your life look like before the war? Life in Gaza has always been full of challenges and struggles because obviously we're living under occupation. So, for example, there is four to six hours of electricity a day. There are many travel restrictions. Borders can open and close whenever. Like, everything is hard. Everything, like, life in Gaza is full of challenges and struggles. Yet you get used to it and you think that's the normal life, you know. But despite living under occupation and all the challenges that we face, I love life in Gaza. I love how... Simple yet complicated it it is. By simple, I mean I love how simple the people are, how everything is close to each other because Gaza is a small place. Like my school was a five minute in the car. (laughs) Then whenever I want to go to a cafe or at a restaurant, nothing really is far away. I love the community there. I love how most of the cafes have the sea as a view. Like life in Gaza is difficult, but I love it and I miss it a lot. Well, that's a much shorter commute than I've ever had going to school. That's for sure. And I mean, that's... yeah, everything is so close to each other. Like the school is close. Uni- I didn't study university in Gaza, but the university, mm-hmm. like the, the top two universities are close to where I live. 
the sea is a 10 minute walk, cafes and restaurants, like everything is close to each other. It's not that I live in a strategic location, but everywhere in Gaza is close to every place, basically. I feel that when I say that to people, they don't understand it. And I understand why they don't understand it, because other countries are like big and huge and you need to, to drive for hours and traffic and so on. But in Gaza, it's not like that. Obviously, there's traffic because of how crowded it is. But still, everything is close to each other. Well, well, if there's a, I don't know if this is a silver lining, but it's kind of a silver lining hearing that traffic is a universal problem, it seems like. Yeah, uh, definitely. And I mean, I love, I love how you painted Gaza, you know, the Gaza that you know, because that is the, that is the place that, that you know, but not what we as I want to say maybe Western um, viewers or readers know of Gaza. You know, what would you say is your favorite thing about about your home country? Okay, I'll say my two favorite things. One, the sea, obviously, to the community. I love the sea a lot. In all seasons, you'll find me by the sea, either in summer, in winter, no matter the season, I love the sea a lot. And I love how close the community is to each other and how caring people are. Like, I don't remember once stepping outside of my house and not saying hi to at least two people. Like, everyone knows everyone. Also, I don't know how to explain it, but everyone knows everybody. I love how caring people are. Like, if I was walking in the street and I was crying, for example, a stranger will come up and he or she will be like, what's wrong? Are you lost? Do you need money? Do you need whatever? Like, people care about each other. Even during the genocide, and if you ask me why people are so caring in Gaza, I'd say maybe it's because of the struggles. It got us closer to each other because we all understand each other's pain. Mm. I'd say that's why people are caring. Like, I remember during the genocide, as a reporter, I used to go to tents to cover stories, and they always built a connection with people, especially children. And I swear, children will be offering me food, offering me offering me mm. bread or water or tea or whatever they have. Taking into consideration there is barely any food in Gaza or barely any clean water, yet people offer, people offer and share. And... So you had just painted Gaza from your perspective as someone who grew up there. And now you're also seeing Gaza in a different perspective. You're seeing Gaza as a as a journalist. You know, has that changed any of your perspective at all? Yes, but in a good way. Hmm. Let me explain. I'm only 22 years old, obviously. So I haven't dealt with many people in my life. But during uh, the two, uh, the month and a half uh, I was covering uh, the genocide in Gaza, I dealt with people and I met people and I heard stories more than I ever heard the stories or met people in my entire life. So actually the genocide got me closer to my people and my community because obviously it was my first time and I hope like maybe it's the last time I covered a genocide that's happening in Palestine, you know. So I got to meet people uh, from different backgrounds, people from everywhere and hear stories. So did I answer your question? Oh, yeah, no, absolutely. And because and I, I love that because I want to also get into, you know, you mentioned in your videos that what happened on October 7th, it's not your first glimpse of war. It's not your first... Um, you know, um, experience of that. So I want to ask, you know, what went through your mind on that morning, you know, the morning of October 7th when when this war started? 
Okay, they want to hear a funny story. That's not so funny. So on the 7th of October, I was asleep. I didn't wake up to the sounds of bombs or airstrikes. Then when I woke up, I was like, everyone around me is panicking. I was checking the news and the news outlets were reaching out to me. And like, I can hear like the TV is on, uh, Al Jazeera is on. And, and we, you need to go to the market and buy bread and buy food and buy everything. And I was like, wow, what's going on? So I was talking to my mom and my mom told me that she woke up to the sounds of bombs and airstrikes and she actually thought that it was raining and she went back to sleep. So I was jokingly, I texted my friend's group. I was like, my mom thought it was rain. And one of my friends, she was like, me too. And I was like, how traumatized or people are that they think the sounds of bombs and airstrikes is rain. Right. Like, are we that used to these sounds? So I don't know really what was going into my mind. Like, I didn't have a chance to understand what's going on. Then the situation escalated quickly. Like, a lot happened in a short period of time. You know, usually <clears throat> usually in previous aggressions, whenever, like, a building got bombed, it's like, oh, my God, it's something major. Enough, the aggression will stop. But this time... What happened in the first two days, or let me say three days, is equivalent to what happened in a 51-day aggression, or even more. And I mean, this is a dumb question, I think, a little bit, but have you had time to unpack what happened in those three days? No, and I'll tell you why my answer is no. Because mm -hmm. whenever, you, whenever you try to process or understand something, something worse happens. Uh, I remember on the 9th, yep. I got the date right. I remember on the 9th of October when I got displaced from my house and how the civil defense came to take us out and how my house was, my building, the building I live in, how it was partially demolished and how uh, an apartment was on fire or caught fire and everything. I was like, this is the worst thing that could happen. Then a couple of days later, uh, people had to evacuate from the north to the to the south and I remember that's the, I remember saying to myself that's the worst thing that could happen uh, more than more than one million people are getting displaced nothing bad will happen then a hospital got bombed a university got bombed houses buildings everything is getting targeted journalists are getting targeted families of journalists are getting targeted so that's the thing whenever you try to process or understand something, something way, way, way worse will happen. So you can't even understand to, to even process. And so while you're experiencing that and you're trying to process what's happening without really being able to process what's happening, there is a sense of vulnerability to showing what your life looked like after October 7th. And, and you really, you really leaned into documenting what's happening around you. You know, how, how were you able to do that? Did, is that also part of the process of helping you understand what's going on by documenting and making videos and, and speaking to an audience? You know, what, what gave you the idea or the strength or the courage to do that? Okay, I love journalism a lot, and I knew since I was in grade six that I want to be a journalist or a reporter when I grow up. But I never imagined that I'd be a world journalist or a journalist covering a genocide happening to my homeland. So I feel that I never really had a choice. 
like in Gaza, you don't have a choice or time to think, oh, do I want to document or what do I want to do? You found yourself doing that. Like, mm -hmm. I don't know how to explain it. I genuinely don't know how to explain it. But you don't like for me, I didn't feel that I have an option but to do that. I wanted to help in any way. What I was going to ask, it, it sounds like it came very naturally. Or did you feel a sense of responsibility to document the war? Of course I did. But, you know, it's only now. It's only now that we're in January. We are in January and I'm like, wow, October passed, November, December. We are in January and the genocide didn't stop. And I'm like, this is history. I'm like, what's happening is history. Uh, my grandpa used to always tell me about the Nakba 1948 and we're living it and maybe even way worse. So it's only recently that I realized how important everything I documented is and how it's basically part of history. You know how our grandparents as Palestinians, they tell us about the Nakba and Naksa, everything they lived, and there aren't many pictures or footage of it because different generations. But I'm like, now, wow, we're living what happened in the 1948 again the only difference is we have cameras we have mobile phones we have internet to show the world yet nothing has stopped or changed and did you expect to make the impact that you did and get the following that you did you know, like like you mentioned the difference between previous generations and now as you have this mobile phone you have technology that you can use to document your experience and I know you mentioned that you knew you want to be a journalist you were sort of on the way to become one but then this this happened and you very organically started to document your experience. So in less than a month, you accumulated over 2 million followers on social media. So what has that been like to suddenly have this major following and, and have so many people watching your reporting around the world? It's a huge responsibility, and I'll tell you why it's a huge responsibility. One of the main reasons is obviously because you're showing the world what's happening, so you feel a sense of responsibility. But the other sense of responsibility that I was feeling is the more followers I have, the more targeted I'll get. So it was actually scary for me that my followers was growing that fast. Were you surprised by that at all? Just the, the amount that people were watching your video diaries? It's not that I was surprised. Like, I never thought of it, to be honest. But it all happened so fast. And we, you know, we've been talking about documenting and how you're able to use technology to do this. You know, how do you think social media can help fill in the gaps left by traditional media? As you mentioned, you know, you're able to capture those live moments as you see them. And uh, nowadays, it seems like so many people are relying on social media platforms like Instagram or TikTok to learn about what's happening in Gaza. Okay, first of all, the social media helped in humanizing us Palestinians. That's the first point. And the second point, many of the most of the things that are happening in Palestine, you don't see them on TV. You don't see the Western media covering them. So now why the world is recognizing Palestine more or what's happening in Palestine, it's because of journalists that are covering on social media. Because through social media, you get to see the picture as it is unedited, unfiltered. You get to see what's happening on the ground. And what are your thoughts about 
being able to send out unfiltered videos on things happening on the ground because in many ways, like you said, we wouldn't be able to know what's happening if not for these social media posts. But at the same time, there are people who who make the argument that, well, this isn't real journalism. What are your thoughts about that? Okay, for me personally, I studied the new media and journalism, so I know what I'm doing and what I'm posting. And actually, many challenge, and actually many channels texted me to work with them since the first and second day before even going viral or before even having followers. And during the genocide, I was working with the British channel and uh, and the French program. Like I was already working with channels, but that was not enough. I want to use my Instagram and my platform to just tell people what's happening, you know, and get to post whatever I want, get to say whatever I want, show the world everything as it is. Right. And you're not you're not only just filming uh, videos and imagery as you're going. You're also getting information from Palestinian journalists and getting firsthand sources um, as you're on the ground. Can you talk about how important that is to get those perspectives? Of course, it is important because when you want to know about what's happening in Palestine, who is better than a Palestinian person living there to tell you what's happening. Now I'm in Australia. I travel, but obviously I'm still in contact with people in Palestine, and it's hard to stay. In, sorry, and it's hard to stay in contact with them because of the internet situation and every and the cellular connection and the blackout that keeps happening. But I'm always talking to journalists, and I get information from them. I have some journalist friends. They they send me pictures and videos of what's happening. They send me messages, and I, sometimes I just translate them and post them on my story. So they don't always have a great internet connection to post pictures and videos themselves or to post the stories. Like the internet, sometimes it barely just sends a message. So they just send me a message update, and I post about it. Right. Yeah. So it's yeah, so so it's important. It's important to talk to Palestinian voices to understand what's happening in Palestine, not to open a Western media outlet that mm. may that may be biased. That was Plestia Alakad, a 22-year-old journalist from Gaza. We'll continue our conversation with her after the break. Hear about her life today and her call to report and document the conflict. This is where we live. Stay with us. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. Loneliness can be a significant health risk to people of all ages. Dr. Laura Saunders, a psychologist from Hartford HealthCare's Institute of Living, talks about social isolation and why we need to connect in person. Loneliness actually is a pretty significant health risk for people that struggle with social isolation. It affects their blood pressure, it affects their immune system, it affects your willingness to get up and get out and can cause some not just emotional issues, but health problems as well. You're not alone. Dr. Saunders explains how important it is for us to look to others and get out of our comfort zone. 
I like to talk about social isolation as not just that individual's problem, but it's a community problem or it's a family problem. We need to connect with others. We can take space at times as well, but we need to step out of our comfort zone and do things to connect with other people. It's life-saving. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Catherine Shen. This week, we spoke with Plestia Lakad. She's a 22-year-old journalist from Gaza and recently made the difficult decision to leave the region. For Plestia, life before the war was quite normal. Putting on the press vest and press helmet carried a heavy responsibility. We asked her about that moment. And you, you've mentioned many times that of course, this happened so quickly that you haven't really had a chance to to process what's going on, and and you went from being a you know quote quote regular person to now a twenty four seven journalist covering what's happening in Gaza. You know what did it feel like to be when the moment you put on your press vest and your press helmet? You know what was going through your mind? I'm just thinking. That's no, okay. Yeah, what was going on through my mind? Okay, about the press vest and helmet. At first, I used to not take them off. I'm like, it's, I'm about to sleep wearing them. And you know how heavy they are. Like, they may be my weight. I used to feel that I have to wear them for safety reasons. Then I reached to a point that the press vest and helmet are bringing more danger to me that mm-hmm. I took them off while working. And... So, so the the press vest and the helmet, you know, it started as sort of this this symbol of, of what you represent, and then later it became a target. You know, how were you able to to stay safe as a journalist during all this time? You know, did you do anything specific? What did that look like for you? There's nothing called stay safe or like be safe during a genocide. You know, mm-hmm. it's just by luck that I'm a, I'm still alive. The Committee to Protect Journalists have been documenting the high risks of reporting in Gaza. And in addition to being killed or imprisoned, some Palestinian journalists have been accused without any evidence of working with Hamas. So when you hear that kind of information, you know, what do you make of those accusations? You know, what do what do you think about when you hear when you hear people accusing Palestinian journalists for for working with Hamas without evidence? It's just the propaganda, and for me, the reason they're doing that is to justify why they're killing journalists. And we are now seeing journalists killed in in Gaza, and you're a journalist at the start of your career documenting what has happened. How how have you been able to process the deaths of of your fellow journalists in the region, or have you not? Okay, it has been harder on me when I traveled, to be honest, because Mm -hmm. when I was back in Palestine, whenever I heard that a colleague of mine or another journalist got killed, of course, I was sad and devastated, but it felt like, oh, it's okay, he got killed, I'll get killed the next hour, the next day. So it's not fine, but you feel that we will all get killed. You know, why would right. I be sad that a colleague of mine got killed? I will be killed as well. It felt it felt like that. I know I know that's not a normal way of thinking and that we shouldn't feel like that. But during a genocide and a war zone, you just see it like that. You see what you see it's a matter of time until we all get killed. 
But now that I traveled and I know I'm in a safe place, but they're not. Whenever I hear the news of death, the news of death, it hits me differently. Well, I think everything you just described is is not normal. It's not some something that that most people have experienced. Do you think that's the thing? Life in Gaza is never normal, either before the seventh of October or after the seventh of October, because this started seventy five years ago. What's happening is not out of a sudden or out of a sudden or something in news. So that, that is what I meant when earlier in the conversation, I told you life in Gaza was full of challenges and it's never normal. But when you are born and raised in Gaza, you start to normalize things that are not normal because that's what you've known your whole life. And do you think that experience, that very personal experience, helps you with your journalistic work? You know, How are your conversations with other people who did not go in Gaza look like? Right now? No, or any time, really. You know, has there been an experience that jumps out to you in terms of having a conversation or, or helping someone understand what Gaza is like or, or what your experiences have been like, you know, for someone who may not understand what, that's, what that looks like? Okay, I never really have to talk and explain it because you can easily see it through different reactions. Let me expand. For example, while studying abroad in Cyprus, I remember once we were sitting in a cafe. It was a rainy, cozy night, drink a night, drinking a hot chocolate with my friend. Then suddenly she started crying and closing her ears. And I was genuinely confused. I was like, what's wrong? What happened? Then it turns out she's afraid of the sound of thunderstorm. And me personally, I didn't even notice the sound of thunderstorm. Or like, mm-hmm. I genuinely didn't understand what's so scary about this sound. You know, like uh, the first aggression, I was maybe seven years old. I'm used to the sounds of bombs and airstrikes and drones. So why would I be afraid of a, of a sound of thunderstorm? So it's just these differences between people born in Palestine and normal people, let me say, it speaks for itself. And at, at what point did you did you realize that your normal is not someone else is normal. I mean, you just described that moment, I think, but I, I think for you, you know, when did you realize that that's not okay, When I was younger, I remember we traveled uh, once to Egypt and like, I was like waiting for the electricity to be cut off, you know, because that's mm. normal thing in Palestine. You In Gaza, you get electricity four hours a day, six hours a day, maximum eight hours a day. And I was like, wow, they have electricity, the whole other country. I was like, wow, other countries have electricity the whole time. I was like, wow, I was impressed. And And this is something as small as electricity. But we have major problems in Palestine, more than just electricity. Right. Well, I was going to say electricity is not a small thing, but I know what you're saying, though. Um, And it's I mean, we've talked about so much so far and. And I want to ask, you know, with your experience um, as a journalist and just as a person and having these conversations with with different people, you know, is there advice or what advice would you want to give those of us who are working in Western media right now, you know, especially in terms of covering the region? My advice would be is to listen to Palestinian voices more and to listen to people on the ground, you know, and to give Palestinians a platform to talk about what's happening. There are many things that people don't see on TV 
that should that people should see on TV. And can you describe what does that look like? What do you mean by there are things that we should be seeing on our TVs and, and our newspapers? Okay, for example, these stories of people that are in tents. Every person that is living in a tent right now has a story. Mm-hmm. You know, I hate how they dehumanize, dehumanize us and how they act as if we're just numbers. Oh, 30, 30 people got killed, more than 10,000 children got killed, or like more than 1 million, 2 million got displaced. What are the stories of these children that got, that got killed? What are the stories of the wounded people? What are the stories of the displaced people? Who are the Palestinian people? And for yourself, you know, both as a person and as a journalist, you know, what... What have you been able to do in terms of of humanizing these stories? You know, I, I I don't like using the word humanizing too much because as you as you say, it kind of has this implication that the other community is they're not human. But but you do tell stories that that help humanize. So how do you how do you do that with your experience? Okay, so basically, I'll talk about my Instagram, my the social media platform that I use. That I talk to Palestinian people. I cover I cover the genocide through my eyes as a 22 years old journalist. I cover what's happening and I give children a voice to talk. I film with them. They just talk and show what's happening. I I film with I once filmed with an elderly person who, when she had to escape, how she took her her birds with her, for example. You know, just like the stories of the people, knowing the people, connecting with them. Like, I don't want the world to see us just as numbers. Right. Like, you know, I hate how we Palestinians always get killed, that the, that the world think that's a role to get killed or to be killed. Like, no, we're not supposed to get killed. That's not a role. Well, and I really loved the video and the caption you posted about meeting a, a woman who saved some animals, including two turtles. That that really yes. jumped out to me as something that's that's lighthearted amongst devastation. So how how are you able to or how can you navigate and balance all of that? You know, the beautiful everyday things that you can still capture among war and among the devastation. You know, people, Palestinian people are the ones who gave me strength to be able to cover what's happening and to continue on with my mission. Other than this story, there's a story that I covered. It was for a young girl. Her name was Lulu. The video was in Arabic, so I'm not sure if you watched it or not. How it was, I met her in a tent and how she got displaced and she told me that that it's her birthday tomorrow and how she had a calendar in her house where she has been counting down days and waiting for her birthday. But now what would, like we're in the middle of genocide, what what will she do on her birthday? And that day, my colleagues and I, we searched everywhere for cake, but obviously we couldn't find any. We just found like some cupcakes, some snacks, and we went the next day to the tent where she, where Lulu was, and we did like a birthday for her, you know? Yeah. No, that's not... So, what, what was her so reaction? 
<laughs> she was so happy, especially that she was following me uh, when she was in her house, in her house before getting displaced. So she was fangirling about me, and you know, it was so sweet. It was so sweet, honestly. And I was so glad that mm-hmm. I made a child smile, even if it was like for a five to or ten minutes. And that's what I want the media to see as well: that we're humans. Like she's just a kid. Like she's listening to the sounds of bombs and airstrikes and she's living in a tent. She doesn't, she barely has any food or any water, but all what she wants is to celebrate her birthday. You know, she's, she was like five or six years old. She just wanted to celebrate her birthday and she just wanted to fangirl with you. Exactly. Like that's what I want the world to know. Like I want to know who the Palestinians are, you know, how we are people, we have dreams, there's more to us than just getting killed, you know? And, and I mean, that is, that is such a powerful story. And I know there are so many of these stories, like you mentioned, that, that has so much potential to be told. Do you think social media is the best place to get those stories right now? Yes. Why is that? Okay, you know what's the thing? As a journalist and a reporter, you talk about what's happening, you cover what's happening in Palestine, you get killed. You post about what's happening in Palestine on social media, you get shadow bound. So it's really difficult to keep posting about what's happening when you feel that the whole world is against you and is targeting you. And that's why it's important to keep posting and sharing what's happening. And social media, is a great source uh, I, and I believe social media is a great source because you get to see what's happening in an unfiltered version from voices on the ground or from Palestinian people. And like many things, you uh, you get these amazing storytelling from social media, but on the flip side, there's also been a lot of misinformation and disinformation that's been spreading online about this war. You know, what do you want our listeners to keep in mind about this war in regards to, you know, where they get their information? Always know who to follow. Always fact check everything. Like not everything you see online is true and not everything you see on TV is true as well. So always fact check the news that you see. And I want to also jump to the moment, you know, you've been covering what's happening for for a couple of months. And, and how did you make the decision to sort of put down your press vest and your helmet and to leave Palestine? That was a very difficult decision, but it felt like you don't really have a decision. It's either you stay and eventually you will get killed or you leave. You know, but but a person leaves Gaza, but Gaza never leaves a person. So you physically leave, but you're mentally there. And what went through your mind when you learned that your uncle had gotten visas for you and your family? I mean, I know you just described that it's not really a decision, but what, when, what, what, what were you thinking when you realized that you had a visa to leave? It was a very difficult moment and I hate how the system works and I hate how some people get to leave and other people don't get to leave. You know, it's like a privilege that some people get to leave and others don't. So it felt a bit selfish, like why can I leave and others that want to leave can't leave as well 
you know so it was like really a mixed emotions but i went deep down i was a bit relieved uh, because like now i know that my mom my sister my family will be safe because the whole time i was like okay i will feel guilty uh, i obviously feel guilty for leaving gaza but then i then i was like i'll feel more guilty if something bad happened to my to my family because of me like if they get targeted because their daughter chose to be a journalist that doesn't make sense you know right um and we we've spoken with with different people who have experienced similar uh, transitions, you know, talking about the challenges of making that kind of decision, having to leave their homeland and and getting somewhere that's completely different, you know, different environment, different language, different culture. You know, do you feel safe now that you've left Gaza? You know, do you feel comfortable where you're at today? I obviously feel safe because I know I won't get killed. But do you feel comfortable? <laughs> I don't have an answer to this question. No one who leaves his or her country in that in the middle of a genocide, a war, a war zone where you don't have an option but to leave or get killed will feel, I believe, will feel comfortable any place they go, despite what country you're in. And do you have hope that you're able to return to Gaza one day? Of course, of course I do. Well, you've also mentioned on social media that that you've lost a lot of the memories that that Gaza has given you because of you know the shops and the schools and the streets are gone but are there things that that you want to do to keep those memories alive are there things that you can do today to keep those memories alive you know what's the thing that I don't even have my laptop with me or have the, uh, the albums and pictures of me when I was young or have the drive that has all the pictures, so all the videos and pictures of Gaza that I have are the ones on my phone. Mm. You know, like pictures, pictures bring back memories, songs bring back memories. But that's the thing, they're destroying and demolishing everything. And that is, you know, that is so, that mm. is so personal. And I think it's really difficult to, to use words to describe those feelings. You know, and I'm asking you to use words to describe your feelings, but what do you hope people can can get out from this conversation, you know, by you just sharing that you've lost so much personal, like, not just like things, but, but memories that you can't touch. You know, what do you hope people can learn from this conversation? I hope that people will learn about a journalist in Gaza and through me they'll get to know about Gaza more and they'll get to know that there is more to Gaza than just bombs and airstrikes and demolishment especially that many people knew about Gaza after the 7th of October and they didn't know about us before so I want them to know that we are people we're humans like them we have dreams we used to have lives and jobs and a favorite cafe a favorite restaurant and so on but everything is gone now so i just want them to know that we're humans at the end of the day that was plestia lacad a 22 year old journalist from gaza coming up more on the difficulties journalists are facing as they continue to report from this region you can join the conversation, 888-720-9677, or leave us a comment on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live.
This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Catherine Shen. We just heard from Plestia Alakad. She's a 22-year-old journalist from Gaza, and to help us understand more on the challenges face, uh, facing journalists like Plestia, we're joined by Lila Hassan, who's an in- independent investigative journalist who focuses on extremism, human rights, and immigration. Lila, welcome to where we live today. Hi, Catherine. Thank you for having me. So I want to start off by asking, because you've been following the conversation with Plestia, can you respond to what you've heard, you know, anything that jumped out to you? Well, there's so much that she said that jumped out to me because over the course of my reporting, I've been interviewing journalists on the ground and even diaspora journalists like Plestia and her position now who have either recently left or left immediately prior to October 7 about what the experience on the ground is like. And, you know, she touched on a few issues that so many of these interviews and people touch on as well, like the targeting of journalists. At some point, she said that you either report and get killed or you post and you get shadow banned. And that is the experience of every journalist in Gaza. It can't be understated enough that there aren't foreign press in Gaza, that Israel totally and utterly bans that. But even so, we have journalists on the ground that are eyes and ears in Gaza that aren't really able to do the reporting that they need to do. So when she talked about being targeted and being in dangerous situations, the Committee to Protect Journalists has, yes, a account of how many journalists have been killed, but they've also emphasized time and again that this is the most dangerous situation ever for journalists in its history of documenting violations of press freedoms or repressions of press freedoms and censorship. The Israeli army has killed more in 10 weeks, and we're now beyond that, but the Israeli army has killed more in 10 weeks than any state or entity has in an entire year of journalists. And so it really is a dire situation for journalists on the ground. In my reporting, I've I've written that by far the all-encompassing task of journalists in Gaza are to stay alive because oftentimes they'll risk that in order to do that kind of reporting. Um, if not being targeted by Israel, they're also putting themselves in positions where they're in environments that have just been bombed and can see further bombing, or they head to areas of live fire, or they're in the hospitals as they're being sieged and bombarded by Isra- the Israeli army. They are constantly in harm's way. And like the majority of other civilians in Gaza, they're are also experiencing the same life-threatening conditions that re- regular non-reporting citizens are. They're also facing a famine. They're also facing the threat of more explosions and bombs. They're facing the threat of imprisonment and disappearing. Um, and they're facing the threat of hunger and de- dehydration, disease, and being trapped in an ever-shrinking space. And so you just described the impossible circumstances that Plestia also talked about during her reporting and living in Gaza. And she also mentioned that she felt like she had to document what was going on there. You know, we heard that she knew she wanted to become a journalist when she was uh, in sixth grade, but did not ever thought that she was going to become a conflict, a war reporter. And she also mentioned that she never really had a choice. So is this a sentiment that is common? Is that something that you're hearing as well? Yes, definitely. And from the journalists that we've spoken to or that I've spoken to, um, really what keeps them going from day to day is the ability to report and document on this historic and, you know, beyond tragic, tragic, tragic is the understatement of a century here. Um, situation and, you know, what is essentially what they call their own genocide, you know, covering it and also experiencing it is what keeps them going from day to day. We've had journalists tell us that 
um, their feelings of helplessness and hopelessness deepen when they're unable to report. And I'm speaking specifically to the communications blackout. You know, they feel incredibly compelled to report and stifled and distressed, um, which, you know, thereby also puts themselves at risk of getting killed because their minds aren't fully sharp or they feel that they're in distress and can't fully cope. And that's when they're unable to report because that's their lifeline. That's their purpose. She also, Plistia also mentioned it being a form of documentation, not just because it relates to previous histories that the Palestinian people have suffered, like the Nakba, but also because their role currently today plays such an immense and impactful role on whatever future impact or whatever future consequences are to come because of um, the intense bombardment in Israel. You know, the International Court of Justice today and in its in South Africa's case there drew on so much of the social media reporting and so much of the journalists in Gaza's reporting to make its case. You know, that their reporting on the ground has such real life impact and real life consequences that I completely understand and hear time and time again that not only does this give, give us reason to live and to try tomorrow, we also know that this is our duty to our country and we have to do this in order for it to ever have a day of justice or a potential day of justice. Well, and because you mentioned social media, and we can't talk about this without mentioning social media, because that's one of the reasons why we discovered Plestia, like many audiences around the world, through her reporting on what's happening in Gaza. And I think social media sort of became a central role because it's the way we're learning about what's happening. So how are you kind of seeing social media start to play, I mean, it is already playing a part in this conversation about the Israel-Hamas war and how it shapes uh, public perceptions around it. And also, you know, we've been hearing the term shadow banning. Can you explain to our listeners what's happening there as well? Yeah, well, you both spoke a little bit about the dehumanization of Palestinians, and um, it should not be forgotten that we've lost around We've lost over 70 colleagues, according to CPJ numbers, but the International Federation of Journalists say that we've lost closer to 90. Um, and the government media office in Gaza also has a different number at that. And so we have quite literally less eyes on the ground and less people that are able to report. They've all left Gaza now for medical treatment. And the numbers are dwindling on the amount of people that can get us unfiltered information that is also fact-checked and vetted by journalists with the skills that we need and rely on. And so the, the average citizen has also become eyes on the ground and witnesses. Ahmed Samek, who is a journalist that now lives in Dublin, but um, I've also written with and was a source for some of my stories about shadow banning and censorship, had told me that so many swaths of Gaza does not have internet and that so many swaths of Gaza aren't even in made cities. They're in refugee camps or they're in displacement camps and they're now also displaced themselves because of the mass displacement of what's going on in Gaza. And so the average citizen is also now a witness and their ability to post on social media channels, whether that's Instagram, Twitter, or Facebook, but also Telegram and WhatsApp for other people to share and post. Like Plastia was also mentioning, you know, when people lack internet or communications, they will send whatever they can abroad for other journalists or other people abroad with access to internet and confirmation to and information to be able to put that online. And so 
we're wholly reliant, if I can be totally honest, on these levels of communication. And that's incredibly dangerous because Human Rights Watch has found that Meta systematically discriminates against Palestinian content, not just in Europe and the, and the Middle East or the US, but around the world. Um, and so we're completely at the whims of big tech, of algorithms, of censorship and shadow banning. And I really can't emphasize enough. It's not just a matter about perception. It's not just a matter of us being able to humanize and see what Palestinians are living through, it's also incredibly key and vital to their survival. Once upon a time, people used to be able to swap intel about where bombardments are coming from, where targets have been heard, where leaflets have been dropped. Um, reporters used to be able to reach out to each other and get a death count or be able to understand what the effects of an immediate, uh, what the effects of a bombardment might have been. And now they trek by foot, you know, with you know, across destroyed landscapes and streets and without cars because there's a fuel crisis in that there is no fuel in Gaza. And it'll take two to three hours to get information that they used to be able to get in 20 minutes. And so social media and and being able to be connected is not simply a matter of publishing their content, but it's also information swapping and being, and in this case, in this most recent war, which by far is the most brutal and unrelenting um, in Gaza's history, uh, is a matter of being able to stay alive. They've also lost the ability to swap information about where to find food, where to find shelter, where to find um, a safe place to sleep at night because most of the journalists on the ground in Gaza no longer have homes or are displaced and don't have a guarantee about where to sleep or where to eat the next day. We only got about a minute left here, but I want to pose the same question to you that I asked Plestia is, you know, this is an ongoing conversation and we're going to have this conversation again. But, you know, what do you hope our listeners and our, our audiences get out from this discussion? I just I hope it's clear that it couldn't be more important to elevate Palestinian voices and to reach out to as many Palestinian voices as you can on the ground. And for journalists that have just recently left, follow those pages and follow their indication about who to follow. We've also underscored that social media is incredibly important. We've underscored that having unfiltered eyes on the ground is important. So I really encourage viewers to just seek out as much as that as possible. They are being shadow banned. They don't have access to communications. The more engagement that they're given, the more will be be able to access that information on the ground. You've been listening to Lila Hassan, who's an independent investigative journalist. Lila, thank you so much for being with us today and helping us understand Plestia's situation better. Thank you so much for having me. I'm Catherine Shen. Today's show is produced by Tess Terrible. Our technical producer is Kat Pastor. Download where we live anytime on your favorite podcast app. And thank you so much for listening.